Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Amen. Well, welcome again to Mosaic, and welcome to my favorite service, the third service. I'm excited to preach this morning. I want to take an opportunity to thank Pastor Morgan, Carrie, the elders, and our staff for giving me this opportunity to preach. And I also want to give a special thanks to my wife. Thank you so much for standing with me and all that we do together. Let's get started. So we're continuing in our sermon series of the book of Genesis in which we're examining the life of a man named Abram. Abram steps into the scene in Genesis chapter 12, and here is where God first gives him his promise after being in a battle with five different kings. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, God makes the promise to Abram again, except this time it's a little bit bigger. God takes Abram outside and says, look to the heavens, and if you can count the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. The bigger promise is set, and now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 17 today. Now, I'm warning you before we get started, if you're looking to hear a message that is much different than last week, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. See, in fact, you're going to hear much of the same message as you heard last week, just from a guy who's a little less articulate, a little taller, a little tanner, and a little wider. See, today's sermon is essentially last week's sermon, just in a different chapter in the book of Genesis. See, when we look at Hebrew narrative writings such as Genesis, God is repeating a type of structure that we have to understand because he's trying to emphasize a particular point. And the point that God is trying to emphasize is this, is that the more God promises us something, the more testing we have to endure. So much for the start of an encouraging message, right? The promise that God has given us today is more suffering. And as Abram's promise gets bigger and bigger, so does the intensity of the testing that he has to endure. This pattern actually continues throughout Abram's life where it reaches its climax in Genesis chapter 22 where Abram is called to sacrifice the very thing that God originally promised him. And when we look at Abram's life in this chapter, his life looks essentially like this. God makes a promise to Abram and Abram believes God. Abram is tested and now he doubts God. Then Abram begins to take matters into his own hands, not too smart. Abram plans fail. God reveals himself to Abram. Abram repents. And God promises Abram again, just in a greater form. The end. We'll see you next week. <laughs> just kidding. See, this pattern is, only, is not only seen throughout the rest of Genesis. We see it also in the Old Testament. Parts of the New Testament, what I hope is that we would see that this is a pattern that we have in our own lives too as well. But the one encouraging thing that I can tell you today is that Genesis chapter 17 shows us God's reassurance of Abram's promise, despite Abram's ability to trust God in times of testing. See, the unfaithfulness of man always leads to the faithfulness of God. 
So with that being said, as we look at today's passage, I believe there's three different questions that we have to answer in trying to understand the pattern of why God is faithful to unfaithful people in times of testing. These are our three questions. What does this passage say about Abram? What does this passage say about us? And what does this passage say about God? Question number one, what does this passage say about Abram? Plain and simple, Abram is a human. And I'm sure you're saying, well, does Shad, thanks for the spiritual enlightenment this morning. But let's not make this point bigger than what it is. See, before Abram was ever deemed as the father of faith, he was just a regular old dude and God chose him. Abram was a real man living in a real world with real problems. And that's us as humans. We live in a real world with real problems, right? And at times when we face problems, honestly, we just want what we want. If you don't think this statement is true, I want you to look back in the seat back in front of you. I want you to grab that connection card, and I want you to volunteer for MKIDS. I want to see how you feel after you volunteer for three straight services. Well, you may be saying, well, that's not true for me. Well, tell me the last time you went through a drive-thru or you were sitting in a Starbucks line for about 30 minutes only to get an order that you never asked for. You're pretty frustrated then. See, humans, we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And Abram was no different. He wanted a son, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he wanted a son in the way that he thought was right in his own eyes. Let's look at Genesis chapter 16. It says this. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. God is basically telling Abram, hey, I'm going to give you a son. And Abram's like, great, God, I trust you. Well, 11 years passed from Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 16. And Abram's kind of like, hey, God, you remember me? It's your boy. Like, I still don't have any kids, right? Remember that promise that you gave me when I was 75? Well, I'm 86 now, and time is ticking, Doc. All right? So what I'm going to do, because you're taking so long, is I'm going to listen to the, the doubts of my wife, and I'm going to listen to my doubts, and I'll just be over here making an Old Testament version of a Mary Povis show and have, you know, intimate relations with this Egyptian servant named Hagar and have everybody confused on who the baby mama and baby daddy is to this illegitimate son. That's the Houston Hood translation. At least when I read the Bible, that's what I see, right? See, this decision-making moment by Abram was not only a lack of faith and trust on his part, it was the epitome of selfishness, somebody wanting what they want, when they want, how they want it. And despite all that, God still chose Abram to be the conduit by which God was going to fulfill his promise through. At the core of Abram's heart was not a man of faith, but a man of selfishness. See, God wanted to give something to Abram that was much greater than he could ever think. Well, what was the greater thing that God was trying to give Abram? Well, Abram wanted a child, but yet God was trying to give him an entire nation. See, Abram was looking to escape the burden of his name, but God actually increased the burden of his name by giving him a new identity. Genesis chapter 17 and 5 says this. It says, No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. See, Abram actually means exalted father, but Abraham actually means the father of many. God was actually increasing the burden of his name during that moment. God was telling Abram, hey, I'm not just trying to make you a father of one. I'm trying to make you a father of a multitude of nations. 
See, the bigger the promise we have, the more testing we have to endure. And Abram wanted his problem fixed, but God wanted to fix Abram. So what was the thing that God was trying to fix in Abram? Well, it was his faith. God needed Abram's faith to grow. And God did that actually through testing. See, when God gave Abram his promise, God's promise was not just about Abram. Abram's promise was about God fulfilling his greater plan of redemption through him, which is why Abram's faith needed to grow. See, in verse 8, it says, and I will be their God. The promise was also for a nation to serve God, not just for Abram to get what he wanted. See, Abram in his heart was looking for a functional savior to his personal problem. See, Abram's greatest fear was that he never thought that he would ever be a father. But God was looking to be a father over an entire nation, which is why he said again, I will be their God. I want to ask you a question that may bring you some perspective in light of where you are today. Could it be that God, in his mercy, is allowing you to go through a time of testing to produce a greater faith in you for a greater plan? Some of the things that you're believing for, they're not bad things. They're good things. They're God things. They're things that even God has promised you. But is it the greater thing? Is there something that God is trying to do greater in you and through you? When we look at the life of Abram, I would venture to say he is. And because he is, we should remember from and learn from Abram's mistake that in times of testing, to not ever think that we can interpret God's greater plans for our lives by ourselves. History has shown us that lone interpreter of God's will and God's word rarely ever leads to the right decision. Let's look at a few interpreters in the Bible. Let's look at the devil, the one who was casted from heaven, who told Eve, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat from the tree in the garden? You will not surely die. Sounds like a really bad interpretation of the Bible to me, right? What about her husband, Adam, right? He eats the fruit in the garden, and all of a sudden he's questioning God's will. This is the woman that you gave me. And I'm sure God at this point was like, bro, you were just lonely, playing with animals in a field, butt naked. I think I know a greater will for your life. What about Abram himself in Genesis chapter 16, choosing to have a child with Hagar instead of believing God to have a child with his wife? See, Abram left to himself straight away from God's greater plan. And we left to ourselves will do the same exact thing. Which leads us to point number two. What does this say about us? If we were honest, nothing much different than Abram. We too are selfish people who make unwise decisions and try to get from God what we want. Let's be real again for this moment. How many of you all ended up giving your life to Christ only when you first approached Christ, you were trying to get something out of him? It's totally me. I knew that I had a need. And God had a solution. Working in campus ministry, I get to see this every week. For some odd reason, our numbers always increase at our campus meeting right around the time financial aid doesn't come through. <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, they're like, Jehovah Jireh, God is my provider. I trust you. May you bring this money. What is God doing? He's using their selfishness to bring them closer to him. All right, what about during the times of midterms and finals? All of a sudden, it's like, God, you say you're going to bring all things into remembrance. You say you've given me the mind of Christ. Well, what is God doing? He's using your selfishness to bring them closer to him. It's the same thing that's happened to me. See, when I left Houston and I attended Texas State University to play football, I did what all college students do when they go to college, whether they know Jesus or not. I didn't study at all. I didn't want school to get in the way of my college experience. <laughs> so I went to a lot of on and off campus events that um, involved a lot of corporate fellowship, <laughs> a lot of praise dancing, 
and a lot of partaking of communion. <laughs> and it was there I met a young lady that I began to date, and that was probably the worst decision I ever made. Long story, a little less long. She cheated on me. We broke up, and I was heartbroken. I mean, it was pitiful, like one of those bad male breakup stories. I'll never forget. One day, I skipped class in the middle of the day, and I went home, and I closed all my blinds, and I turned on ESPN, and I watched Sports Center with the sound off in my underwear. <laughs> That's pretty pitiful. And I'll never forget, my roommate and my teammate at the time came into my room and said, Shad, what is wrong with you? Get up. You smell awful. I said, no, man, I can't go anywhere. He's like, no, we're going to go to that campus meeting tonight. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going. He said, Shad, they have free food, and they have pretty girls. I wiped the tears from my eyes. I ended up going to that campus meeting that night. Well, why did God bring me to the campus meeting? He was using my loneliness to draw me closer to him, right? And also, I came to the campus meeting because it was just a few weeks before that I was diagnosed with an autoimmune and neuromuscular disorder that doctors still don't know what it is today. Doctors looked at me and said, Shad, your career is over, and you're going to be crippled by the age of 25. And I was hurting, but I kept coming. Why did I come? I really didn't want God. I wanted God to heal me so I could continue playing football because scouts were just beginning to write about me during that time. But see, like Abram, I came to God out of complete selfishness, but he used it for a greater plan. I eventually ended up going to a conference like we held here this past week, giving my life to Christ, and I ended up going into campus ministry. See, God had a greater plan for my life than my personal need that I had at that moment. Another reason why this passage shows that we're no different from Abram is that it's just hard for us to trust. That broken relationship affected my ability to trust people and to trust God. And we've all had broken promises in our life, whether that's divorce, parents not fulfilling the roles that they're called to be in our lives, um, business deals that didn't go through. The list goes on and on. And it's hard for us to trust people because we have actually broken promises with others. We have even broken promises with ourselves. Let's have another moment of truth here, all right? How many of you are doing well with the New Year's resolution that you set out at the beginning of the year? Raise your hand. Whoa. Oh, we got one. Yes. Yes. How many of you are completely failing at it? All right. How many of you, it doesn't even matter because you never even started, right? Right? I've been to the gym like four times, but I have been to Cane's for chicken strips at least like 14 times. You know? It's a proximity issue. Cane's is closer to my house than the gym. You know what, but it is said that 80% of the people who break a New Year's resolution actually do so by week three of that new year. Talk about broken promises, right? Essentially, that's what a resolution, they're goals and promises that we make that we have to fulfill ourselves. And when the results don't happen when we want, we say, okay, should I even be doing this at all? And eventually, we walk away from the resolution that we set out. And it's no different in life. When we begin to go through times of testing, we begin to doubt God's promises over our life. And why wouldn't we? Because some of the doubts that we have, they're actually founded in some circumstances that we have to take into consideration. Well, what was that for Abram? Well, it was the obvious. My man was 99 years old by the time we get to Genesis chapter 17. Like, his age was an actual factor in him believing God. And before we start blaming Abram and starting getting all super saved, I'm like, why don't you have any faith? I mean, wouldn't you doubt God, too, if you were in his shoes? Wouldn't you begin to take matters in your own hands? Absolutely, you would. And we find ourselves perverting God's promise. Why? Because the intensity of the testing that we have to endure is too much for us to bear. Let me give you a little bit more perspective of where he was in life. According to Paul in Romans 4 and 19, it says that Abraham's body was as good as dead. And his wife was barren beyond the age of being able to have children. Could you imagine the doubt and the pessimism that Abraham and Sarah faced in that moment? 
I imagine Abram sitting there talking to God, say, hey, God, are you kidding me? I'm fresh out of war. I'm 99 years old. My wife is barren. We have no kids. And you want me to believe this promise? Do you see my current circumstance? Do you see what's around me? You want me to have faith? Like, I'm not even hopeful anymore. And if faith is the substance of things hoped for, how can I have faith when I'm hopeless? See what happens when you lose hope? I'll tell you what happens. Proverbs 13 and 12 says this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. See, the longer we have to hope for something, the more our heart begins to ache. And that's where pessimism comes in. And when you're hopeless, the one thing that you need in that moment is a miracle. And the toughest thing about being in a miracle is that you're in a miracle situation. But when hope is against hope, this is the breeding ground for God to actually be able to perform a miracle. And it's many times in that place of hopelessness and pessimism that we find God reassuring his promise to us. So how about you? What is your situation today where it seems like all hope is lost and that God will not fulfill his promise? For some of us, we're thinking there's no hope for our marriage. For some of us, we're thinking, will we ever even get married in the first place? For some of us, we're thinking, can I really live a life of purity? Will I ever be able to have kids? It seems like miscarriage after miscarriage after failed adoption after failed adoption. Some of us were thinking, man, will this relationship ever get restored? For some of us who are in school, we're thinking, you know what? If I don't pass my classes this semester, I'm going to have to go back home to the very situation I came to college and I ran away from. For some of us, this is that battle against depression and anxiety that you seem like you just can't shake. For some of us, it's that we're looking at that doctor's report and we know that there's no hope for healing in our body. For some of us, is it our job and thinking that if we don't perform up to the standards of our boss or even ourselves, we won't be able to take care of our family. Or maybe you're just thinking, when will I ever even get a job? Will a family member of mine ever get saved? See, in your response, is it pessimism and a lack of faith? Does it seem like the promise that God has given you seems as good as dead as it was Abram's body. If so, let us look at God's response to the situation that we're facing today. And that leads us to our next point. What does this passage say about God? Well, I believe that it says three things. The God who reveals, the God who expects, and the God who will. Let's look at number one, the God who reveals. When we look at Genesis chapter 17, our God reveals first who he is before what he's going to give to us. Verse one says, I am God Almighty. It's almost like he's going to Abram and said, this is who I am. Put some respect on my name and remember me. God in this moment is looking at Abram and saying, you know what, despite your sin and your doubts, I want to reveal first of who I am and my character to you. The establishment of God's personhood and his character first allows Abram to build back trust to believe that God would always show him who he is, not him revealing his sin. And this is what God does for us. This is the God who reveals. Number two, the God who expects. God reveals to us that he has an expectation for our relationship with him. Also in verse one, it says this. It says, walk before me and be blameless. Now hearing this, you would immediately think God was saying, walk before me. And if you are blameless, I'll bless you. At least that's what I thought. But that is not what he is saying at all. He is saying, walk before me and be blameless, period. And then he goes on to reassure Abram of his blessing. See, Abram's ability to be blessed by God is not on the basis of Abram's ability to walk blameless before God. 
This is an unconditional promise that God has given to Abram. And yet God still has an expectation for his relationship with him. And God has an expectation for our relationship with him today. So this means that our choices still matter because they matter to God. But God told Abram what was fully expected of him, but it was not on the basis of him fulfilling his promise. Why? Because it was just in the chapter before that Abram had already failed God according to his expectation. But yet God comes back in the next chapter and reassures him that I'm going to fulfill my promise through you. See, he has an expectation for his life, but not a condition on his blessing. And therein lies the tension. And make no mistake about it. God's word calls Abram to walk blameless. And this was not an option. This was a command. And I know we live in an evangelical church world today where we love to talk about God's love and God's grace. And I'm all for it. I'm all about it. I need it. I'm a hot mess. But I want to talk about a thing that sometimes we as Christians avoid, and that's just sin. And see, growing up, I was a jokester. I'm still a jokester today. Chris is like, sometimes you joke too much. But I grew up in an old school household, and I grew up in an old school black church, all right? And in the household I grew up in, there was a lot of things that you could play around with. But the one thing you couldn't play around with is you couldn't play around with God. All right. And all the black folks in here said, amen. Why? We know this because even though I'm 31 years old, I grew up in a time where the pastor had the right and the spiritual authority to call me out in church, by the way, and say, you're wrong. You're in sin. You need to repent and go figure. I had to take it like a champ. And as I took it, I didn't leave church saying, well, those people are judgmental and I'm never coming back there again. See, I grew up in a household that when my parents told me to do something, it was not a suggestion. It was a commandment from on high, right? I want you to look at a picture of me and my dad. Look at little Shad. Okay, now take your eyes off a little Shad. I want you to look at my dad's biceps. I want you to look at his forearms. And I want you to look at those king-size snicker things he calls fingers, right? See, when he put his hand on me, God was actually making a commandment, see? And in my household, the way that the house was run then is still the same way that it's run now. I'll never forget the first time I came home from college, and I'm thinking, man, I'm playing college football. This is great. My parents are going to be happy to see me. I'm not going to have to do any chores at all. And as I pull up into the driveway, my dad meets me outside, and I say, hi, Dad. And he says, hi, son. I love you. But I want you to know, if you ever step out of line with me, I'm going to own you. And as I stood there in the days, I was like, okay. And he was like, no, go cut the grass. And I was like, yes, sir, like Wakanda forever, right? (laughs) Now, why was that my response? It wasn't because I thought that my dad was going to stop loving me. Look how he addressed me first. He addressed me as his son. And secondly, he addressed me in his love for me. I responded that way because of the weight of the titles that my dad holds in my life. He holds two titles, one, loving father, and two, the authoritative leader of my household in which I carry his last name. And the name that I carry means that I will always show him respect no matter how old I get and no matter how big I get. See, his title is both and. It is not either or. And our response to God should be the same way. He is a God who is both full of love and grace, but he is also the authoritative figure that when we become a Christian, he says, walk before me blameless if you're in sin. And see, because God blesses me without conditions, I obey him without restraint. And see, obedience is actually one of the founding blocks of love. Listen to Jesus who said this himself. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Obedience is a clear indicator if, if you love God or not. Love is an action word and obedience requires action. Obedience is not us sitting in our quiet time and debating what does obedience really mean? Nor is obedience trying to understand what it means in the Greek or the Hebrew. 
nor is obedience us sitting around at a coffee shop nor in our community group debating about what obedience is when there's lost people around us that if we would just obey God and evangelize, they would maybe be in that community group with us too as well. See, obedience is doing. So when my dad said, cut the grass, that meant cut the grass. It wasn't me going outside and saying, well, let me look at what the grass looks like and figure out which lawnmower is the best to cut this. No, my dad wants to know, Shad, did you cut the grass? And it wasn't less loving for him to tell me that, nor is it less loving or conditional when God says, walk before me and be blameless. This word blameless literally means whole. God wanted all of Abraham. He wanted a total commitment from him. That was the expectation that he has for Abram, and that is the expectation that he has for us today. This is the God who expects. And speaking of total commitment, that leads us to our last point, the God who will. God is totally committed, no matter what, to fulfilling his promise for us, whether we have faith or not. God reminds and reassures Abram of the specific covenant that he has given him. Simply put, God has not forgotten his promise, and God's going to do what he says he's going to do, no matter what. In Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abram 17 times the two most important words in the Bible to me, I will. God is extremely intentional in emphasizing the fact of what he's going to do in Abram's life. He's not telling Abram what he can do. He is telling Abram what he will do. And God lets us know throughout his word that he is the God who will. Abram is 99 years old. This is the third time that God has appeared to Abram. He's basically telling him, Abram, I'm bigger than your mistakes. And I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, even if it takes 100 years for me to, to fulfill it through you. And I want us to take a moment and revel in the fact that God has given us a chapter in the Bible to remind us that he is the God who will despite our circumstances. And this is my testimony. See, when I was eight years old, we were ran off the highway by a drunk driver. We flipped three times in the air, hit the ground, and rolled ten times. Everybody was ejected out of the car except me and my mom. And as I woke up in a pool of blood and gas leaking everywhere, I saw my mom choked by the seatbelt and hanging by her neck. And the car was actually getting ready to blow up at that time. And I said, God, if there's a way that you can get us out of here, would you do that? And I felt like I heard a small voice for the first time and said, look to your right. And there was a hole. And I pulled my mom out of the car. And when I looked back, that hole was closed. Paramedics arrived to the scene and they said, how did you get out? There is no way. But I knew that God was going to do whatever he had to do to save me and my family that day. Years later, I look at my brother who's dying dead on a hospital bed. He contracted a disease that only happens every 10 years. 95% of the people die from it. Heart, lungs, liver, kidney, brain, it's all dead. He's bleeding out of his pores because he has a flesh-eating bacteria, and he gets to 75 pounds. He's a vegetable. And as I'm in the room, he flatlines. And in that moment, for the second time, I heard God say, I'll save your brother. Well, what is my brother doing now? He's living, he's preaching the gospel in Houston. Like, this is the God who will. I'll never forget the first time I experienced prophecy. I didn't even know what that was. I was about 10 years old, and an old lady was coming through my neighborhood. She knocked on the door, and she was like, young man. I'm just like, all right, what's up? She's like, one day, you're going to lead a lot of college students to Christ, and then you're going to become a pastor. I said, thanks. I shut the door in her face. Because I'm like, this lady's crazy. I don't even know any college students. Well, what am I doing today? I'm working as a campus missionary. See, it wasn't about my doubts then. It was about what God said through her. And four years ago, I really got a word from God that I was supposed to marry, caress. And I was like, cool. I like that idea, God. But I didn't know what all I was going to have to endure. I went through four years of depression. 
I checked into a counseling center for pastors. I was in the deepest, darkest place of my life. Doctors thought I had cancer. We weren't in the same, right? We weren't in the right place. Her parents didn't even want us to be friends. And she said, I'm thinking about becoming a missionary in Africa. And I remember driving in San Antonio that day thinking, God's never going to fulfill his promise. And out of nowhere, I kid you not, a rainbow comes out of the sky. And God says, it's not about what you feel. It's about what I said. Well, four years later, I proposed to Crest in New Zealand. And I want you to look in the background. What is that? It's a rainbow. And God reminded me in that moment, this is the promise that I'm giving to you. I'm warring on your behalf. And also, whenever you go through hard times, because marriage gets hard, you know what? I'm going to keep my promise to you because I'm the one who said it in the first place. And where did we get married at? Right here in Mosaic. And I'll never forget one of the first times I came here to church. God said, you know what, Shad? One day you're going to be preaching here. And I said, I don't believe that at all. Well, what am I doing today? This is the God who will. But I must be honest with you. There's so many times that there I still doubt and I don't believe God. Every day I wake up and I say, God, are you going to heal me of this neuromuscular disease? I'm tired of going to mission trips and laying hands on people and watching them getting healed. But you're not even doing anything for me. Are you ever going to cure me of this depression? Because I'm tired of crying each and every day. And that is not an overstatement. Are you ever going to deal with this anger that is still in my heart, that runs through our household, that affects my wife and I's marriage? Are you going to continue to promise me things and not fulfill them? Because you've told me a lot, but they still haven't happened. See, as time goes on, God keeps promising me, but the intensity of my testing also increases. But thankfully, the promise for my life, like Abram, isn't fully contingent upon my faith. It's contingent on the God who says, I will. See, just because God hasn't done it yet doesn't mean that he's not going to do it in the future. And you know what? God's either going to do it here on earth, he's going to fulfill his promise to me when I get to heaven, or even if he does neither, he's going to fulfill it through my descendants like he did for Abram. And as a God who is always thinking of what's to come, the thought that keeps me going is that I have a covenant-keeping God. See, my faith is not in my ability to believe. My faith is in the one who made the promise in the first place. This is the God who will, and this is good news. See, centuries later, there will be one who would come that was much greater than Abraham. He went through a process of pain and testing beyond of which the world had ever seen. See, Abram endured the anguish of having to wait for a son, but yet the Son of Man, Jesus, bared the anguish of all the world's sin by dying on the cross for us. Not so that he could receive a promise. Oh, no, so that we could receive an unconditional promise, the promise of salvation. See, Jesus did not need a promise. Why? Because he was and he still is our promise today. And the promise that we need today is not just to believe for something. The promise is that we need to believe in someone. And that someone is the God who will. Church, if you receive this word, would you say amen? Amen. Let's go to God in prayer.